0: as you well know, in which we're waiting. We can either wait for something to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) I might sit here and say something very different than what you expect. And you might be very disappointed and then you would have waited for nothing. (laughs) And doesn't that happen often when we wait? So then we take up the challenge Of bringing mindfulness to what's happening in the moment and in this way life provides us many many and ample opportunities for the cultivation of mindfulness when we have the telephone receiver in our hand and we're waiting for someone to answer the telephone on the other line you take a moment to acknowledge the sitting. When we're in a traffic jam, wonderful opportunity <laughs> for sitting, for seeing, for acknowledging the irritation and the frustration and the impatience. In the post office, where I live down in the mission, where I've lived the last year in the mission in San Francisco, there's one post office serving a large community. And I have wonderful opportunities, standing in line, (laughs) to come to standing, feeling the ground underneath my feet. So you can't ever say to any of us that you don't have time to meditate, because I know it's not true. (laughs) Yet again, I have to admit, I don't know what it is about you all, that I have one idea about what I'm going to talk about, and then I just feel caught in trying to investigate a whole different idea. And so tonight, really, is not a Dharma talk that's very well thought out or ever been given before. And um, it's really more an investigation and I feel in many ways that um, we're all in the same boat together. And what triggered it off for me was um, talking about Sangha earlier on this afternoon. And that just stayed with me. Thinking about Sangha and the importance of Sangha, especially as we're all leaving. And what Sangha means in the context of our daily life. And I was thinking of it also in relationship to the topic I was going to talk about, which I will a little bit, which was around relationship and sexuality. So, we'll see how it goes and um, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, and maybe also I, I want to leave some time for questions and answers at the end too. When I was thinking about both topics, relationships, sexuality and sangha, what <laughs>
1: <laughs> <coughs> You're not the only one who's been thinking about that, I'm sure, in this room. <laughs> <coughs> uh. <coughs> <coughs> what,
0: what I came to was, again, um, something that all three of us have really been saying a lot, over and over again about mindfulness and the cultivation of mindfulness because so deeply ingrained in us is the idea and the wrong understanding that insight and wisdom and truth and the cultivation of mindfulness to come to these is primarily and mostly found in a meditation hall doing sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And you know, in my experience, I just have to say, it's not true. And very luckily for us, because we don't spend most of our time in meditation halls, and it would be a sorry state of affairs if it was just in the meditation hall. That we came to mindfulness. Then, if we see the cultivation of mindfulness being as important outside the meditation hall as it is inside the meditation hall, what we go back to becomes very exciting and very challenging. And it is when we see it in that way that Sangha suddenly takes on a whole new life of its own. Because Sangha then becomes the container, can become the form that holds that continued exploration of mindfulness. Not only that, but that because of where we are in the development and the rooting of this tradition in this culture, we're really at the cutting edge of it. We're in a position, enormously creative position, of manifesting a tradition in a new way. When we talk about cultivating mindfulness in our daily life and the creation of Sangha, we are right now creating something very new. We become the holders of something that will take root for hundreds of years after us, in this culture. That is very, very exciting. It's very exciting to see what once we thought of as primarily an individual pursuit of coming to liberate ourselves as actually a social pursuit as well. In its ultimate vision, surely is also and primarily our liberation for most of us. For some, the liberation of all beings. But it becomes quite different to see it in that context. Daily practice, then, isn't secondary anymore. To put it another way, here, in this context, is created the form of sitting and walking in order to cultivate bare attention and general comprehension, along with the Dharma talks and the interviews with the teachers. Outside of this situation, we use our relationship, not to our breath and body only, as the primary ground for this, but our interrelationship with the rest of life. So, our primary object isn't just the breath anymore and our body, but it's the breath and our body in relationship to our lover, in relationship to our work, in relationship to our environment, in relationship to the rest of life. So that the primary object becomes in relationship to, which is there all the time anyway, And what I'm saying is that that is our primary object. Having this practice too, because I think you need this practice too, I think you need both actually, can be the ground for enormous development of wisdom and compassion of freedom. It's no less important. In fact, just as we say, the body and mind, in a way, are inseparable. You can't have a mind without a body, and you can't have a body without a mind. Alive anyway. So ultimately, you can't do this practice not in relationship to. They're they're together. We are part of an environment. We are in relationship to. And we can't cut out, as we can't cut out our body and just be in our minds, we can't cut out in relationship to the rest of the world, the rest of our relationships. This is what sila is all about. When the Buddha talked about the practice, about the path of liberation being based on three foundations, sila, or morality, was one of them, right? Right? In the Eightfold Path, he talks about panya, wisdom, right understanding, and right thought. He talks about sila, right action, right livelihood, right speech. And then he talks about mental training, effort, concentration, and mindfulness the three pillars of this practice. Sila is about the form that we use, the container for the cultivation of mindfulness in relationship to. Whatever it is that's happening at the moment, our car, the paper that we have in front of us, our work, the telephone, whatever. What's very exciting about that is that we now, we are really creating that container for ourselves and to see that because we don't have a tradition of it here as in the Asian countries not only that but because of the conditions in this country it wouldn't be appropriate to directly transmit the particular way Sila is expressed in those countries So Sangha becomes the expression of Sila. The container in which we continue the cultivation and the investigation that brings us to freedom and liberation. It's revolutionary it really is because that's what we're doing we're in a process of transformation and that transformation isn't just happening to each of us as single individual units we really are part of a movement we really are part of the mass movement I just don't think it's been so clarified it was in the student movement days And it was with the feminist movement. But for the Dharma movement that we're in, I don't think it's been so clearly expressed what we really are in the middle of doing. You know, so when we come to meet in our study groups, the investigation I dare to say, shouldn't just be purely looking at the Buddha's texts, but should be this the exploration of just what I'm talking about. To acknowledge the social implications of what we're doing is to acknowledge Sangha. In this context then, how do we make sense of the precepts? In this context then, what are our guidelines? has to be always the acknowledgement of what's happening and that's where we start. That place of coming into connection with ourselves again. And then also there has to be the acknowledgement of the context that we're operating in. When we're talking about creation of sangha, what we're doing is talking about how to understand, how to talk about, how to act, how to be in our lives in a way that continues to build this movement that we're in towards our freedom. it's again acknowledging that we're not alone and that we can't do it alone if we could do it alone we wouldn't be here we can't do it alone to really come in a deep way to acknowledge our vulnerability and it's that very vulnerability that becomes the basis of understanding the precepts because we're very vulnerable and we can't do it alone and because we're very vulnerable and we can't do it alone we come to make agreements with each other we come to support each other we come to create structures that help each other and it's all based on our vulnerability the fact that really we're very open and very connected and so any one of you can hurt me. Because you can. And I could hurt any one of you. And that we can hurt life because we're very vulnerable to each other, really. And because of this very open and deep vulnerability we all have to each other, and that all life has, in recognition of that, we then come to look at how can we live that first precept of non-harming, not harming life, and what does that mean. If I really allow myself to become very vulnerable and to really open, for example, to the environment, I can take it all the way down to Cutting down the use of toilet paper I use because I know what it means to hurt a tree. It can be as small as, do I pick flowers because they're pretty and then throw them away when I'm on a walk somewhere? It can be choosing not to wear some leather goods because I know I'm hurting life in the process. If I really live with my vulnerability, I become very sensitive to the rest of life. And when I'm very sensitive to the rest of life, then I want to move in a way that doesn't harm it. All my actions then start to move towards that direction of non harming sometimes it's theoretical and that's okay when a mosquito buzzes around my head I really have the intention to kill it sometimes quite often and I have to talk to myself about it I so I'm working on an intellectual level And saying to myself, Arena, this is life. It's small life, and you might consider it unimportant life, but it's life. And do I want to hurt it? Do I want to hurt life? And I don't. And so I don't kill the mosquito. That's okay too. It's okay to talk ourselves into it, even if we don't feel it. If I'm building something perhaps I don't want to use teak wood because those forests are being devastated and so all the species leave living in those forests there are all sorts of ways that once I become vulnerable and I bring my mindfulness I bring my presence of mind to the relationship I can start to see how to live in a non-harming way And when I'm in relationship and I'm non-harming, I'm not harming myself either. In this context about thinking, I want to say something about right thought. That sort of hit me in this country a little bit because I don't, I wasn't born here so maybe it was a little easier to see. And also because I've just finished my schooling here and I was sort of surprised in a way about the experience. You know, you have in your constitution, I think it says it's self-evident. It is self-evident that. And that's sort of interesting to me and I thought about it and I thought about the Puritans that first came to this country that had as their basic assumption in their religion, the a priori assumption that there was a God. We assume it to be self-evident that there is a God. And that's translated into your constitution. It is self-evident. What's the connection? What is arena driving (laughs) at? <laughs> Does she know? <laughs> <laughs> you also had it itself evidence that all men are equal. Basic cultural assumption in this country that if it isn't self evident, it's not worth investigating. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not worth thinking about. And it can't be true, because if it was true, it would be self evident. And that cultural assumption, alongside the particular way we practice, which is to, for very good, good reason, not to use thinking as our primary object here, often tends to mean that we don't really use thinking as a way to investigate the truth. And I really want to support us in the context being in Sangha, of creating Sangha, of living with the precepts, of creating this cultural transformation, this cultural revolution for us, to use the thinking process. I think that's what right thought is all about. Bringing thinking to this process and really investigating it, really investigating what it means to live. In a non harming way. <coughs> in this context, I can talk about sexuality. Here's a subject that has enormous, enormous weight in our lives. that really isn't brought under the light of investigation too much, and certainly not culturally and socially, and yet it determines so much of our behavior. Not only does it determine so much of our behavior, but really there's a lot of harming happening in the name of sexuality. It's this part of the talk that I feel I'm not trying any more than you do, so... When we look at harming and non-harming in our life, we can look at the more... what's the word... um, obvious ways that sexuality creates harm. One in three women in this country will be sexually abused. One in five young girls is sexually abused by her family or intimate friends, and one in eight boys. I heard that a woman was raped every four minutes in this world. I think it's probably more there's an enormous amount of harming done in the name of sexuality on this kind of gross level and we all know that it happens on a more subtle level that each one of us here in this room has in some way or another participated in a sexual relationship in which we haven't felt good about, in which we wouldn't use the word healing or healthy. And it's very understandable because this culture puts enormous weight on sexuality It has been, it has been, become the cradle for the only place in our life where there's intimacy and where there's touching. It has become the modern spirituality in a way. Whereas in other cultures at least, and probably in our cultures long time ago, We made connections and came into connection in deep ways with life in many more areas. So now in this day and age, often it is just in the sexual arena that we can be intimate and come into connection with. It puts an enormous burden on sexuality, on the sexual act to carry this weight for the whole of our lives to come into connection not only that not only is it expressed in this culture as the main way to come to happiness and to come into connection you know through through songs of love through movies where finding someone you love and being sexually attracted to them and Having a sexual relationship becomes the answer, the be-all, and the end-all of your life. But at the same time, most of it is hidden. How many of us really talk to our friends about our intimate sexual relationships? It's certainly not really discussed that much in the open, don't it's very very hidden and because it's hidden it becomes the vehicle for the expression of all that is hidden to us in our lives as well so that those parts of ourselves that we don't own our shadow parts very easily become expressed in the vehicle of sexuality because it's also so hidden at the same time that it's so important and seen as the main way to express our deepest desires for connection. What a contradiction to live with. Not only is it seen in a way as the the cultural spirituality of these last few decades, especially as religion traditional religions have been on the wane. But that part has also become distorted in the consumer culture. So that it's not that we just only want to come into connection with ourselves, that's the positive part of it. The negative part of it is that we use it as a consumer item. How often have we picked someone up, that's the English expression, what's the American expression? Pick someone up. Pick someone up, flirted with someone, not because we cared about them, not even because we wanted to be in connection with anything, but we wanted the high. And it's cheaper than drugs. (laughs) A lot. Sexuality also becomes the major way we escape from ourselves. It becomes the most sought-after consumer item. How to run away from myself. And again in this context, it's very easy because we so objectify the sexes and use certain physical characteristics As an excuse for the sexual act. Get it? Do you? (laughs) We look at someone and we find them physically attractive, all of which is conditioned by our past and by movies and TV. Finding someone physically attractive doesn't have anything to do with whether this person really is compatible with you, is in any way right for you, So you see these physical characteristics almost divorced from the rest of the body sometimes, let alone from the personality, and that becomes the excuse for a pickup. It even becomes the excuse more for a relationship. How many relationships have you been in or do you know others in that have started because of physical characteristics where the sex act is good and you end up in a relationship with someone you hate or you don't like? or that you end up having these terrible fights and struggles with for years. It's really amazing when you think about it. How it's used, and how we hurt each other around it. And I'll say one more point about it, because I think it's something that um, also isn't that clear. And that is the way power intersects with sexuality, especially in this culture. Because the fact is that in many sexual relationships there's also a power imbalance. It's usually gender related, but not always. You know, it could be that a woman boss has a relationship with someone that she's employing, or a teacher with a student, a therapist with a client, or just a man who's not really aware of the power that the society confers on him and uses it unconsciously. And how the needs of one person then in the relationship very subtly determine how that relationship is expressed because one person has more power than the other. You know and in this culture it's very it's not been that long ago where women really and their pleasures weren't considered it wasn't considered important. The man and the man's pleasure was considered to be more important than the woman's and women were there to serve men's needs actually. And women didn't even talk about it. They were ashamed of it a hundred years ago. That's not so long ago. It was only in the 60s that Betty Friedan and the women's movement really started to explore that. That in many relationships, when there isn't a clear balance of power, it becomes very painful when it's sexually expressed because sexuality is such an intimate part of our lives. One person gives up their power to another, and one person takes that power. So given that, (laughs) and this little exploration, where do we go with it? I think, first of all, to start to become very aware of how we're behaving sexually, and the nature of our desire in relationship to it. You know the story of the, um, there was a story in the newspaper about a year ago of someone who had AIDS, who, it was an, he, he, it was an anonymous story, who was writing about how he didn't tell the part, his partners, I mean the people he picked up in the bath that he had AIDS. And I remember reading that and being really shocked. And then thinking, are you that different, Arena? I mean, at that scale, yes, but... How do, how do you relate to your desire around sexuality? And do you let it run you? Really looking and investigating, how am I relating to sexuality and my desires around it? And then I think really coming to understand that sexuality is not what this culture puts it out to be. It is not the path to come to wholeness. It is not the vehicle to come to wholeness. Not by itself at any way. At any rate. That spiritual practices in the context of the spiritual practice, in the context of what Jack talked about last night about dukkha, about how unsatisfactory things are, about how things change all the time, about a nietzsche, and that we really can't hold on to things, and about anatta, the selfless nature of things when we bring the spiritual truths into our sexual relationships, then our sexual relationships can become another vehicle, a way to express those truths, and that's quite different. But then sexuality is being in relationship with. It's coming down and becoming part and in connection with all of us and all of our lives in a way that's very healing. When I have a partner who supports me in coming to understand that I can't expect permanence because life is impermanent and that things may change and that I don't have control over that. When I have a partner that supports me in understanding that it's imperfect and how to live with the imperfection of each other in the expression of sexuality, (coughs) then it's very different. When I have a partner that helps support me not to identify with, not to own, in the relationship, in the experiences of the relationship, in the sexual act, it becomes very different. Then it really becomes sangha. Sangha becomes the support and the exploration and the living of those three truths. Sometimes in sexuality, sometimes in eating, in working. It becomes, I can't do it myself. Will you help me? Can we make some agreements about it? It becomes, You know I really like you and I'd like to I'd like to sleep with you tonight. Let's talk about that. You know, it becomes how do we really own and take responsibility for what we want and communicate it clearly so that we empower the other person to say, "Yeah, that's great. I'd really like to do that too." No strings attached. I would just like that expiration. (laughs) Or, no, no, I I really don't want to sleep with anyone who I can't be in a relationship with. Because we have non-harming there in our hearts. We start to care about the people that we're in relationship with. Can just be a very small thing of touching in and saying how are you feeling right now what's happening what's going on and then when there's a reply not owning it not taking it personally but allowing the other person to have their own experience that's a small thing But imagine our relationships in which we were able to have that kind of communication and expression, where we really allowed each person to have their feelings, and we didn't own them. We didn't take it personally, and we didn't identify. Imagine having agreements around that, so that when we got caught, we had some agreements on how to process that. And imagine not having that with just our lover or our friend, but with our friends. Imagine having it even with some of our working partners. Hey, you know, if I do something that you think off the wall, I really want you to come and tell me. That's really important to me because, you know, I really do care about you or I really respect you and I want to support your work. And saying that not just once to our working partners, but over and over again over time. Can you see the web, the holding, the creation of Sangha in that? That movement of beings living in a new way together? It's really beautiful and it's really revolutionary. Well, I thought I'd... (laughs) Well, I want to stop there. not Because I really wanted to leave some time for questions and I had no idea how quickly time was going. So um, so maybe I can just um, round it off again because I, I was going to talk about all the precepts and. Um,
1: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: so I talked about non-harming. just say end up by um, saying that a, a, a night or two ago I can't remember when it was Jack and Rodney and I were in the staff room talking I, and we were talking about something and I said you know I have this I had a dream of talking to thousands of people just like Martin Luther King I have a dream I do I have a dream <laughs> <laughs> I and this is my dream that the inspiration we have found here together is just the starting point of a new way of living that the vision that we have that the connection that we've come to manifests in the continued exploration, in the continued cultivation of freedom for us and all beings. I have a dream that we here in this room can manifest Sangha in a way that makes our lives outside this hall as important in the development of mindfulness and in the development of realizing ourselves as the work we've done in this hall. In this way May our lives be blessed. Thank you. I, I (coughs) you you know, um, I think that's that's a really important question, and it reminds me of um, what the monk said um, in the three-month course who came to visit us. I'm horrible, name so I forget what his name is, and. someone talked to him about the same question and he said you know a lot of it depends as Jack also mentioned in his karma talk on your intention do you have as your intention the harming of is there that feeling of wanting to hurt and I think that's an important part in looking at the issue of harming and non-harming is our intention around it because there are many situations in which we do kill. For example, the beautiful—the beautiful—I mean that you all know already, I'm sure, from from um, stories of Native American Indians and how they kill, where there is prayer around the killing, where there's enormous gratitude around the killing of animals for the food that they eat, and that. And that because that's the intention, and that's the relationship to, it feels very healing, and it feels very organic and in relationship to. So I think that's an important part of what you're saying too, that sometimes, yeah, we do need to kill. It isn't that we should never not kill. And what's at issue here is our our relationship to it, our intention and our energy behind it. And in this case, I think that many people would agree, I mean, not to go into the specifics of IMS, but to see generally, that in many situations, yeah, we need to kill, and it's for healing. And that's our intention. And it's for creating environments that are conducive for healing, and that's what you're saying. At certain points, we need to make the decision to kill in order to have environments that are conducive for health and healing. And that's what being part of an imperfect world is all about. And that we're also killing all the time, in a way, in eating. Eating is about killing. And life is about killing, in that sense. And it can engender enormous gratitude and gratefulness that we've been given the gift of life. In this context, we might almost, in eradicating the flies and the cockroaches, also feel enormous gratitude for the space that's left, for the clean space that's been created, and for the life we've taken in order that we come to the space that is free of them. That's the same as having enormous gratitude for the life that's given to us, that we ingest inside of us, that we might live and do this work. Around
2: this issue, um, and especially around intention and yeah, I have found myself in situation a couple of times, more than a couple of times, where I felt on a very deep level that I needed to Somehow there has to be a (coughs) way through this issue of killing. When, when I assume the responsibility of the life. somehow part of my life that um, causes me anguish, and it causes me more anguish
0: not to act that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. That what you're saying is talking that you're coming from a place of love, and that's what's important. And careful consideration, because I'm, that's an important part of it too. That there needs to be an investigation and a careful consideration of our actions, but that when the intention is coming from a place of wanting to heal, that's quite different and necessary and important. That's right. Yeah. Kathy?
2: You have. <laughs> and I'm really, really, deeply really grateful to you. I think that the potential for Buddhism in the West is to really understand non-harmonic in, in every sense, in everything that we use, and not to follow the examples of Asia and how people view non-harmonic to come up with our own definition. And um, living at the center, I think we, who are staff, come up with questions a lot about and find um, it difficult to find the context in which to talk about it. So I just wanted to thank you. And um, I think we need a lot more, I think we need, this needs to be the stuff a
0: lot more talks and a lot more discussions in the tree, than the tree.
3: Thanks, Kathy. One more. Andre? I wanted to ask um, if you could say a little bit more about the, 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 the problem of um, dealing with sexual desire and um, getting carried away with it as a, as a, as a source of suffering, of, of all the desires. It's um, perhaps the most compelling song to us if I um, wanted to be used um, Can you say something more about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um- like to see I would like to see um, groups sangha groups people in this practice meeting to give each other support around working with sexual desire because I think it's I think I think it's some something that is a, a long process I don't think there's a simple answer for it I think it's I think it's an ex, that that the way that we work with sexual desire as I said is laden with a lot of our deepest yearnings and aversions, both at the same time. And I don't think it's just a simple one-two, one-two matter, but a, really a way of, of coming to a deep exploration of ourselves by looking at that place in us. And you know, for some of us it's alcohol, some of us it's food, and some of us it's sexuality. It's different. But to take, to take those parts of our lives and to use it as the f- as the food for our dharma, as a way to come to explore, to see the truth of of what's happening inside of us. Um, the twelve step programs are doing that beautifully, but they but they're not a hundred percent in alignment with some of the teachings, and some of the truths that we come to hear. A, a lot, a lot. You know, and if you're living in a in a situation in which There isn't a Dharma support group or people in this practice that you can come to and work with, or just people in your community that you can work with in an ongoing way. And if being an... Then another place to do it is in a 12-step program. But I really, I mean, I really... My vision really is that we take up this exploration actively in the context of doing this work in the context of the truths of Buddhism and, and not see it as a fix it, just in the way that we don't see our meditation as a fix it. Looking at our relationship to sexuality is not I want to fix it and then everything's going to be fine. It's about our process of relationship and how to continually refine it and make it more true and make it more healing. And That's, you know, that's pretty long term but also very exciting because it's liberating we come to free ourselves of of, of that grasping and that holding and that acting out in compulsive ways that's so full of suffering. So, um, that's what I suggest. Okay, it's five past eight.
3: Um, Thank you for listening.